Football MX Network production. Josie's on a vacation far away. Come around and talk it over. So many things that I want to say. You know a new view from inside the truck. X racer to racer and eye to eye. A casual look into the personalities of the sport and an experienced perspective into the action from week to week. It's Jason Thomas's industry seating. Presented by Pirelli Tires and brought to you by Blenzall, Plum Creek Funding, Works Connection, Premier Vapor Blasting of Georgia, 612 Suspension, and Fly Racing. Welcome to Industry Seating. My name is Jason Thomas, and I'm going to be your host as we weave through this afternoon's podcast. It's going to be a pretty short one. Not a lot of news this week, which is okay. I would much rather have a confirmed Lucas Oil Pro Motocross schedule to talk about. That would be nice, but given the headlines and given the current state of the coronavirus in America, I can understand the hesitancy and the uncertainty of that schedule being released. And I think that's a pretty fluid situation day by day. So we will stay tuned for that. But what we are going to do is we're going to answer some listener questions. And I've been taking those each and every week, and I appreciate all of those that come in. So what I want to do is also announce that we're going to do a Fly Formula Helmet giveaway. And I'm probably going to – I'm trying to think of when I'll give this away, but I think it will coincide with – the launch of the Fly Racing 2021 line. So that embargo lifts on July 31st. So let's do it for that Sunday, which I believe would be August 2nd, if that sounds right. So the questions over the next, you'll have three weeks from today to get your questions in. And we've done this once already this year. There are no real guidelines. There isn't anything I'm particularly looking for. Uh, it's just going to something be something that grabs my attention, and it's going to a question that makes me think a little bit differently. Something I, you know, because a lot of these questions I comb through, and um, they're very obvious to me. And that doesn't mean we won't cover them, but they don't really spur deep thought for me. It's more just, oh yeah, this that's the question, and this is the answer. But I like questions that I have to approach and really. I don't know if analyze is the right word, but a little introspection and kind of weigh and and measure my approach a little bit because some of them are hot button topics. Some of them are highly debatable. And a lot of times I like questions where there's no right or wrong answer, right? It's not a fact-based question. I like opinion-based questions and that can get you in trouble. That's what Steve Mathis and I argue about all the time. We were arguing earlier today. We were arguing whether or not there was going to be a college football season this year. And it was a lighthearted debate, which A lot of times it's not lighthearted, but today it was. But those are the kinds of things I like talking about where I'm almost an attorney, where I'm I'm presenting a case for why something's going to happen. I enjoy doing that. I probably should have been an attorney. That would have been the the best fitting role, I think, for my personality. Um, So yeah, we'll do a fly racing formula helmet. I'll have to look at inventory to see which graphic we will do, so I can't promise you whether it will be an origin or a vector or a 2021 helmet, but 
uh, I will work with you to, uh, to find the best solution on that. So just bear with me on that, but that'll, that should give you all some inspiration. So check out formula.flyracing.com. If you want to learn more about that helmet, some of the questions I've gotten over the past couple weeks, I really appreciate them. You can email me at jason36 at aol.com. You can email me those questions. I've had some direct messages to my personal Instagram, which is jason66thomas, and also the industry seating Instagram. You can direct message me there as well. So any way you want to send me those, you can tweet them at me too. That's fine. jason66thomas. That's totally cool. But uh, I, I really like hearing back from you guys. And as this podcast continues to grow... I hope that we continue that interaction because that's what this is all about. I, I'm, I don't take myself very seriously and I really like engaging and interacting with, uh, people that just maybe you don't even get to go to races. You know, I've been going to these things my whole life. Thanks to my parents, but a lot of you don't, maybe you get to go to one race a year and that's your only real, um, kind of in your face interaction that you have with whether it's athletes or the races or that, uh, atmosphere. And if you've only get, you're only getting to see it once a year and maybe you only get to see an outdoor race, right? You don't even get to go to a supercross race. I can tell you that it's a different experience at each one. They all have their nuances and it's a di- definitely a different feel at each event. So for me, my perspective is pretty wide and I have a lot of experience with this stuff and to be able to share some of that insight I feel very blessed and fortunate to be able to do that. When I look at other sports, like the NFL, college football, some of these sports that I genuinely love, like MotoGP, that they're about to start next weekend. Thank God. Uh, I love to talk to people that are super connected into that sport because I can relate. You know, it's a different sport, but I can relate to their ability and their perspective and insight, but I don't have that inside information that they do. So I love when I get the opportunity to talk to those people, I listen to their podcasts, I read internet articles. Um, so I can completely put myself on the other side of the fence where I do know this stuff. And I do get to talk to people that are the decision makers and in this sport we love of supercross and motocross, but I do have the perspective of watching the NFL and I have zero (laughs) insight on any of that other than watch what I see on TV. So, um, point being, I can understand all of you listening the, uh, questions and the lack of insight you may have at times. So please ask that that's really what I'm getting to is please ask if you have questions and you want to know some of these things, because a lot of times I take it for granted. I really do. I don't put a lot of emphasis on the, uh, ability to gather information and inside info that I get. And you just hear so much gossip and things that may or may not be true. Um, but I have no problem sharing with you people. I just don't always understand what's obvious and what's not. So please keep those questions rolling. And again, we will do a, a formula helmet giveaway. So let's get into some of these questions. First off, I want to thank the sponsor of this podcast though. Pirelli tires, obviously one formula one race today at the Red Bull ring, but they are the spec tire of formula one. So that's not really fair, but they will be, uh, they'll be back in action in MXGP here soon. They will be back in action in Lucas Oil Pro Motocross here soon. So go try a Pirelli motocross tire if you have the ability and you're out riding. I think you'll be pretty impressed. I know I was. I also want to thank Blenzol Oils. They are really making a push. And, and a lot of their plans have been derailed by coronavirus. They had so many things going on. 
uh, you know, Michael Wesse was going to race the, uh, the 125 races at the outdoors and, and let's all wish Michael Wesse a speedy recovery. He just got hit by a car on his bicycle yesterday. So I don't know how that would have played out with him racing 125 races or what have you, but let's, let's hope he's okay. But more importantly, Blenzall is on the charge and they will have Michael Wesse back out there sooner than later. And they have some fantastic products that I think have really just kind of fallen by the wayside. People forgot about them because Blenzall wasn't actively engaging customers and they weren't really doing any marketing at all to speak of. That's all changed. Go check it out. I talked to you a little bit last week about the uh, 455, which I think is probably the do-it-all, right? That's what kind of made their name, the 455 Ultra. It's, it used to be known as Super Blenzall. And if you're looking for a product for them to kind of hang their hat on, I think that's a pretty good place to start. So thank you to Blenzall for being a part of this podcast as well. I want to thank Works Connection. Go check out the Pro Launch Start device. If you're serious about getting a good start, you're not going to really have a chance without a starting device. And I would recommend the Works Connection Pro Launch Start device. I want to thank Palm Creek Funding. Listen, this is an easy one. And this, there are two sponsors of this podcast now that have nothing to do with Moto. One is Plum Creek Funding. The great news is, is that you probably like money. I like money. I like saving money. Well, there's a great opportunity. Actually, you could say it's the best opportunity in the history of mortgage finance, because it is. We've never seen rates this low in America's history, period. That's not hyperbole. That's fact. So if you're, you have an opportunity to buy something, if you have an opportunity to refi, go call Zach Morris at Plum Creek Funding, 720 720- 212-4685. And I've had people that he wasn't even able to help because he wasn't licensed in their state, but he could still give them really good advice and steer them in the right direction. And that's only going to help Plum Creek funding in the end, right? He's, he's in the business of attracting new customers, but he also understands networking. And, and just like this podcast, this moto community is all interconnected. So reach out to Zach, see if he can steer you in the right direction, at least give you at bare minimum, give you good advice on what's the best outlook for your home or your future home. I'd also like to thank Premier Vapor Blasting. The best way I can tell you or explain to you what they do is go on their Instagram. Go on at Premier Vapor Blasting and you will see in in just in a nutshell what they do and I tell you every long time listeners of this podcast understand that this is my go-to because every single time they post something, I'm like, that has to be a new product. That can't be, that can't be an old vintage part and, or just some hammered beater bike that they sent parts off of. And it is, it, it's, it's real. And you know, this is a pretty new technology they're doing and it blows me away every single time. And it's like groundhog's day for me every time I see them post, because I'm like, how the hell do you guys do that? But go check it out at Premier Vapor Blasting. If you mention the Industry Seating Podcast, you will get a 25% discount. I also want to thank 612 Suspension. Listen, if you have a dirt bike, if you have a side-by-side, if you have an ATV, if you have an adventure touring bike, if you have a street bike, if you have anything with to do, let's say, with the power sports industry, 612 Suspension can help your performance. They are a part of the Race Tech family, and they will absolutely help your ATV, UTV motorcycle perform better. I raced for the 612 family for years of my life. As I've said on this podcast before, his dad used to work on my suspension. I'd drive down like two hours and 
we would talk about settings and testing and all that stuff. So Ronnie's a second generation guy, six twelve suspension. He's this has always been around his whole life, right? So he is thoroughly versed in every aspect of this. And if nothing else, I can't stress this enough, nothing else, just get your oil changed. It, like you don't, maybe you don't care about getting revalved and all these things. I understand there are those people out there. I think you'd be wrong, but I understand that, that there is that sentiment. Getting your oil changed is like breathing life into your suspension. So reach out to 612 suspension at 612 suspension.com and at 612 suspension is their Instagram as well. If you mention this podcast, you will get a 20% discount on labor and parts, which is pretty cool because he's just eating the margin on the parts. So pretty cool of him to offer that. Also want to thank Fast Foundry. This is their second week of being a sponsor of the podcast. I want to thank them for that. But they are a tech solution company and they are the second sponsor of this podcast that is not motor related other than their moto people. Now, whether you work for a company, you have your own startup, maybe you work, you've owned a company for 30 years, right? I have a great example of that because as Western power sports has grown, we've absolutely had to do this. We've had to modernize. We've had to learn how to automate our systems. That's what fast foundry does. And they can do it in both, both ways, right? They can help you get off the ground and make sure your systems are as efficient as possible, or they can modernize older systems. And we've been going through this ourselves. I've, I've literally watched it happen right in front of my eyes connecting and and integrating and progressing all those systems. That's, they are the experts at this. They worked with fortune 500 companies. They've worked with HP. They worked with Mountain Dew. They've worked with Intel. They know what they're doing. So if you are, obviously, if you're listening to this podcast, you're a moto person and you want to speak moto to your it solutions company, reach out to fast foundry. You can find them at fastfoundry.com. Robert and the crew over there are great people. And I could not recommend them anymore. Last but not least, fly racing. We all know I work there. We all know how much of a homer I am for everything they do. Check out flyracing.com. Only three weeks away from the 2021 stuff, so I am super excited about that. But go check it out. That's what I do every day, and I love that brand. So let's get into some of these questions. I appreciate you guys all listening to my babbling about sponsors, but that's what this is about. And if nothing else, a couple minutes of your time, maybe you'll learn something. And in the case of like Plum Creek funding, they've saved people thousands of dollars. He saved me like, like I said, in a couple of podcasts ago, I think it was like 64 grand over the course of the, you know, the rest of my mortgage that has to play out. He can save you a lot of money. So if nothing else, maybe you can save some money by listening to these, you know, me rambling about sponsors. So anyway, first question here, and this is from Dr. Papa. He's actually a dentist. Uh, I've spoken to him a couple of times. Really, really nice guy. So he's asking about Eli Tomac and he finally got this supercross championship done, right? So many years after we thought he would finally check that off the list, 2020 was finally the year and say what you want about the seven race blitz, whatever. He was leading the points going into it. Maybe not by a lot, but he was leading going in and he left with a championship. I don't think you can put an asterisk on it. I think if you did, that would be very, very unfair. I think he earned it. I think he proved that he was the best guy. And, you know, Cooper Webb had a really good run at the end of the series, but he didn't close the gap down. Eli was the best guy. Eli extended his points lead over the last seven rounds. And what else can you ask of him? So great job from Eli. And and I really hope people don't try to detract anything from his championship run throughout this uh, COVID-19 situation. So back to the question, 
He asks if I think that Eli will try to go win a motocross of nations now that he got this supercross series off his back, right? Because that's been the whole thing is his excuse. I don't want to say his excuse, but his reasoning for not going and doing motocross of nations was that it sacrifices his downtime and then kind of recharging the batteries and then preparation for supercross, which we know comes back around pretty quickly after, uh, you know, motocross of nations ends. I don't think so. Um, do I think he'll ever race at motocross of nations again? Maybe, uh, let's see how COVID-19 shakes out. I, I think COVID-19 is going to be a temporary problem, you know, as vaccine and cure and all those things are inevitable in my mind, but I don't think he really wants to go. I, I don't, I, that's my personal opinion. I, I'm pretty sure that monster Kawasaki doesn't want to go. They've been fairly vocal on that front. I will say that the most likely scenario for him to go win is if we get a red bud motocross and nations back sooner than later. And I think we will, I don't think it's going to be, it obviously won't be this year. I don't believe it's going to be next year because I think we'll go back to France, but maybe 2022. Now the question is, will Eli Tomac be racing in 2022? I don't know that he's going to be out there. So when you start combining all of these outside factors, right? Is he racing? Will we get a USA motocross and nations again. Well, like there's a, that's a lot of ifs to say, yes, he's going to win motocross and nations. So to answer the question, do I think he's going to check that final motocross and nations win? I don't think so. I just think there are too many ifs to make it happen. Could he? Yes. If he decided, you know what, we're going to France next year and let's assemble the best team possible. Let's go unprepared. I think they could win. That's not a guarantee. I mean, you think about how strong the Dutch team is right now. You think how good the French team would be on French soil. There's, there's no guarantee we would win because we've taken really strong teams with Tomac on them before and, and lost. So, uh, in the end, I do not believe that this will be, uh, just because he won the supercross title doesn't really change my opinion of whether he'll win motocross nations. I would love to be optimistic and say yes, because me spending my own money and, and I would say Western power sports has really helped me in the last few years with motocross nations and, and thank you to them. But I've been to these international motocross of nations several times and we've lost and it's devastating. Uh, so I would be one of the biggest cheerleaders for a USA win. As you all know, if you've listened to Pulp Show, you know how hard I take that, that loss. Uh, but I just, I personally just don't see Tomac being a part of that for now. Anyway, we'll see as if he signs a new contract that could all change. I just, I personally think last next year's is last year. I don't have any proof of that. I could be dead wrong. Um, but that's just what I, I think might happen as he goes out. He finally won that Supercross championship he goes out and races 21 and then maybe he's done. If he stays, that's great. I, I really hope he stays because he makes the sport a lot better, but I could, I could see him riding off into the sunset after next season. Okay. Another question. This is from Cole. He asks about the old school and you guys remember, go back to 2005. Some of you may not have even been around, but 2005 Suzuki and Kawasaki found, found themselves in a very unique position where they were behind the eight ball on four stroke development, especially for the 250F. They were both getting smoked by everybody was getting smoked by Yamaha at the time. Honda was kind of next, right? They had developed the, the Honda 450, which had come out in 03 
late 02 for the for a lot of people, but 03 was really the first foray for a lot of people. But Kawasaki didn't even have a 450 yet. Suzuki neither. They had factory guys on them, but they didn't have their production bikes out. And at 250, they were way behind. So they said, let's team up. Let's pool our resources and technology and work together to come out with a 2005 Suzuki Kawasaki hybrid 250F. And they were both, you know, it was a Suzuki and a Kawasaki and they had their separate sales sides, but they were basically the same bike. They were different plastic and different color and all that stuff, but the tech and, and really the resources were, it was the same motorcycle, almost kind of like the Husky and the KTM were, the, especially the first year or two. They've made some changes then, but it was kind of the same premise as that. The problem was, is that bike sucked. I don't think I've ever seen a, well, I shouldn't say that a Cannondale. I saw Cannondale pushed off the track more than any other bike in history, but that 05 250F between Suzuki and Kawasaki would be second as far as the most <laughs> consistently pushed off motorcycle in an outdoor national series in history. It was just everywhere. Like just a bike, the bike just exploded. It broke engine failure. Uh, I think they were just rushing to get it out. It wasn't thoroughly vetted. It wasn't ready. And, uh, so just to get those of you up to speed that weren't around or don't remember, um, it was just a really terrible year for a motorcycle and it was kind of born of desperation between the two manufacturers to get a 250F on the market, but it had no business being raced at that level yet. And I think that kind of bore out on the results. So he's asking about 2020. Now Suzuki is kind of in a similar situation where they don't have the development team. They're behind on resources. They don't even have electric start on their bike. It's really heavy. Um, they're just in a, in a bad situation and you know, in a market landscape, uh, comparison what really what it comes down to. And I, I'm very close to that situation. I've been to Japan twice in the last few years to witness the launch of these motorcycles, talk with engineers, visit the factories. So I consider myself pretty up to speed on where Suzuki's at and they're behind. That's just a fact. And I think anyone, including Suzuki trying to deny that they're only fooling themselves. That's just a fact. There is no way to steer or argue it. As much as I pump this RM Army thing, I'm I'm well aware of the situation. And Ricky Carmichael was absolutely relentless on the Suzuki engineers over there telling them they got to get it together. And they have to innovate to catch up to not only their J Japanese counterparts, but all the, the Austrians as well. So he's asking if it would benefit Suzuki to team up with Kawasaki again, much like they did in 2005 to try to, you know, get back up to speed with, with technology and innovation. The problem is I don't think Kawasaki has any interest in that, right? Kawasaki's poured millions into their bike to make it better, make it stronger, win races, win titles. They just won a Supercross title. They've won three outdoor titles in a row and that didn't come cheap. That didn't come cheap on an R and D level. You look at how many times they've updated their bike, right? We know that bike was brand new at motocross of nations at Redbud, and it, that didn't go very well, but it was a significant step forward. You look at all the shootouts, they rocketed up the shootout charts. I've talked to plenty of people that have ridden that bike and they love it. So I don't think that Kawasaki would really want to help, right? What, why would they do that? Why would they 
lend all of this insight and information and knowledge to Suzuki. There's no business sense in that, right? It's just like, Hey, yeah, we spent all this money, did all this hard work and put all this time into it. And here you go, Suzuki, take all this information and tech. So you guys can now compete with us on a sales level and try to steal away our customers. So as much as I understand the reasons for the 2005 collaboration, that was born out of desperation. Kawasaki's not desperate right now. They, they would probably say thanks, but no thanks. If Suzuki reached out and said, Hey, could we, can we lean on you for some technical information? We'd love to copy your bike. I think Kawasaki would tell them to pound sand. So just different times, different situations. And the two companies, honestly, from what I can see from the outside, Kawasaki and Suzuki are just in very, very different places as far as spending, as far as success, as far as sales numbers, as far as outside sponsorship. You look at, you know, Monster's commitment to Kawasaki. Suzuki can't count on that. They don't have that huge outside sponsor to ramp up their funding and ramp up their marketing spend and all those things. Um, So yeah, just a really, really different time and place than what we saw back in 2005. Moving into the next question from David, he asked kind of, it's a very long witted question, so I won't go into every aspect of it, but in a nutshell, he's asking what makes the goat, right? Greatest of all time for our sport, because this is a widely debated topic, right? You have the Ricky Carmichael camp, you have the Jeremy McGrath camp, you have the James Stewart camp. Uh, and then you get guys that aren't necessarily deemed the goat, but they are absolute legends of the sport. Ryan Villapoto, Ryan Dungey, uh, Eli Tomac is climbing those ranks now with, you look at the number of wins, the number of outdoor titles. He's finally got that supercross title. So you're not going to ever have that asterisk in there as far as, you know, he, cause there are a lot of guys, Damon Bradshaw being one of them, Kevin Windham being one of them that didn't have that supercross title. And it, it will always be in that conversation. So he's asking, what is the difference, right? What separated Ricky Carmichael from James Stewart? Uh, What separates those guys from Eli Tomac now? Now, to me, Ricky Carmichael is the best to ever do it. And yes, I understand if you compare Ricky's stats in Supercross to Jeremy McGrath's, he's not there, right? And, And Jeremy McGrath is the best Supercross rider ever. That you will never convince me otherwise of that. I raced against him. I watched him as a little kid. I watched, I raced against him after he retired too. I raced against him in every aspect of his career. Yeah, maybe not when he was his early career. I watched him, but I was around for several different layers of Jeremy McGrath and no one changed the sport like he did in my opinion. And when you go back to when Jeremy was at his best no one could even come close to him, period. He, re, he completely revolutionized how people rode. And I think you could, you could make a case for James Stewart doing some of the same. But when I think of absolute domination of a sport, Supercross, absolute domination, no one did it like Jeremy did. In that like 96 season, he was so much mentally and physically better than those guys. And you could, you could just watch him out there. And I think the biggest difference between what Jeremy was able to do and what James Stewart was able to do, because I think the talent level and their ability to be significantly better than everybody else on the track was pretty close. 
I, be, I believe that like James, when James was on, it was done. It was over. You know, Ricky was the only person that could keep him honest. And then when Ricky was retired, Chad would have his day. But if James was firing on all cylinders, it was like a foregone conclusion that James was going to crush everyone. That's just, we knew that. And I was really close to Chad at the time. And yeah, we didn't really talk about it, but I, I kind of knew it, right? If, if it was James's night, forget about it. But I think the mental side was really what separated Jeremy McGrath and the talent and the, the innovation of how to approach supercross is undeniable, but Jeremy had won the race before the gate dropped. He knew how much better he was than all those guys he was racing against. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't brag about it. He wasn't cocky. He was just really sure of himself. And I think there's, there is a difference there. Those are, those, there's a fine line between being extremely confident in your placement amongst your peers and then being cocky. And Jeremy never was cocky. He just exuded this confidence that it was like, and I'll never forget, perfect example, uh, Evie Ferry, who is Tim Ferry's wife, most of you who should, should know who Timmy Ferry was, you know, longtime factory rider. His wife, and this is going back to probably, I'm going to say like 99, Timmy and, and Jeremy were teammates on Chaparral Yamaha. And I remember Evie asking uh, Jeremy, like, hey, are, you know, do you get nervous or um, how do you view this whole racing thing when you're going to the weekend or whatever? And keep, those, are, those two were teammates, and I was best friends with Timmy, right? So I'm kind of in the midst of all this around the team or whatever. And Jeremy would just kind of like – no, I'm not really, I'm not even really nervous. Like he knew he was better. That's the whole thing. Right. But if you talk to Jeremy, he was as down to earth and cool as a cucumber. You would never get an ego out of him, but deep down he knew he was better than all those guys. And he wasn't even nervous about it. He's like, yeah, I mean, whatever. If I do something stupid or crash or my bike breaks, yeah, it's not going to go well, but otherwise I'm probably going to win. Like I, I, I have these guys covered, but he never, outwardly portrayed himself that way to where you're like, God, this guy's full of himself. It was like this quiet confidence, but mentally, I think that was his, that was his biggest edge is like, he, he wasn't intimidated or even worried about anybody else because he, he had those guys beat before he even lined up. And that was a a really big, you know, kind of feather in his cap, his whole career. And when I look at, you know, James Stewart, or Ricky Carmichael, I don't know that those guys necessarily thought the same way. Now, Ricky outdoors, absolutely. Uh, he, and for good reason, he's the best motocross racer of all time. And I'll argue that with anybody, but he was pretty much that way. I think he lined up no knowing that he was going to win supercross. I think he was pretty insecure. Um, you know, David makes a good point here where Ricky, I think Ricky's insecurities and his fear of losing really drove him. And I I knew that I grew up with Ricky. We're the same age. I raced him my whole life growing up as kids. I used to go drive up to his house and practice with him. And I, again, I'm very fortunate to have been around all these guys and, and I don't take it for granted, very blessed, but I know these guys personally and I know their personalities and what makes them tick. And Ricky was, man, he, he really was worried all the time. And going back to those days when we were kids, it was Shea Bentley and Robbie Horton and all these guys that you would maybe have heard of, maybe you haven't. 
I mean, Shea Benley won a Supercross title, so maybe you would heard of him. Charlie Bogard, um, all these guys, the fear of losing to those guys drove him. And then when we turned pro, you know, it was, it was Brock Sellers and Kevin Windham and you keep moving up the ranks and then it's Jeremy McGrath and then it's Chad Reed and Sebastian Tortelli outdoors. And these were real things and real people that drove him every single day in his training and his dedication level to training and riding was one I don't think I've ever seen before or since, but it was again, it was born in fear and it was fear of losing. And it was an absolute resistance to the thought of losing. And his mom kind of drove that home in the early days. Like she would say, listen, if you don't ride more and you don't take this seriously, you're going to get beat. And that was not acceptable for him. So as much as he would whine about training and riding, he would go do the work because he did not want to lose that weekend or he didn't want to lose at Loretta's or he didn't want to lose at Anaheim one, whatever the situation was, as he got older and his career progressed, that fact and that dynamic remained where no matter what the cost was work wise, dedication wise, the juice was always worth the squeeze for him. And when I, I think when he lined up for a supercross race, he was so terrified of losing that it pushed him to be the best ever. He, he was much more scared of losing than he was excited about winning. And that, I don't think that ever changed for him. I really don't. I think that was true all the way to the end of his career. Even to like, you know, like James was kind of the final, uh, stepping stone or, or obstacle, let's say obstacle for Ricky to overcome because James's speed was so good, right? He, he would just really changed how people rode and, and what the expectation was and what a bike was capable of scrubbing and doing all these things. I mean, he was blitzing whoops faster than anybody had ever done before. And Ricky was still able to overcome it, you know, in that, that Oh six season, James gave him everything he had, right? It came down to the final race and Chad Reed was in there too, right? All three of them but Ricky still got it done and and they had some great races in 07 too. But I think Ricky was, Ricky was pretty scared of James. I think, I think the speed that James could wield scared Ricky a little bit. And if you go back and you remember those, uh, world supercross rounds that we went to Toronto and Vancouver going into the 06 season. So this is the off. Well, I don't say off season, but it's December of 05. And you go back and you think about the way James Stewart beat Ricky. He beat him at his own game. And if, if you haven't seen those races, maybe you're younger, or maybe you weren't as close to the sport thing, go back and watch them on YouTube or they're, they're readily available. James Stewart gets on a four stroke, comes into Supercross. This is when he changed. This, these were the inaugural races for his change to number seven. He kind of toys with Ricky a little bit. At Vancouver... He lets him pass him and then passes him again, right? He, he kind of stalks Ricky, makes a move, and then slows down and lets Ricky back by and then passes him again. And I've never seen anybody do that to Ricky before or after. That's just not something that people did to Ricky Carmichael in his career. But James served notice that he was ready to take the reins and ready to step up and be king. And that's December, right? That's uh, early December. And then Ricky goes back to work and he's basically got a month to figure this out. 
and then Ricky wins a title, right? So I, that, that was just a testament to who Ricky was as a racer and just relentless pursuit of perfection. And there was no substitute for winning. There was no acceptable, re, you know, uh, result other than winning. And I'm, I'm trying to put this into words, but it, unless you were around it and saw what getting second place meant, right? It was like complete failure. It wasn't like, Oh, good job. You know, we got second tonight. It's pretty good. I need to win. You know, that's what I'm paid to win, but we got to make it happen. No, it was devastation and the plane is crashed into the mountain type, uh, frustration and, um, despair. I don't want to say despair, but it, it, it was everything like winning was absolutely everything. So long winded answer as I tend to do. But I, I think the mental side is what really differentiates a guy like Ricky Carmichael from all these other guys. Because even at Eli Tomac, right, we saw him have mental meltdowns at some of these rounds, like New Jersey 17 always comes up. Go find me a situation where Ricky Carmichael mentally collapsed. And, and, and when I say that, I mean once he kind of found his stride because Supercross was not really good to him, big bike supercross in 99 and 2000. But once he got it together in 01, he kind of kept it together. He didn't have mental meltdowns. Did he have some crashes? Sure. But mentally he didn't fall apart ever. He was always the most mentally tough of all these guys. And I think when you combine his talent, which was undeniable, right? He won his whole life. He was always the best guy. And again, like I said, I was the same age as him. So I watched this firsthand. He was always, always, always the best guy. But he was the perfect combination of the talent, the incredible work ethic. And and when I say incredible work ethic, I mean to a level that was almost unhealthy. I, I've never seen anybody ride that much in my entire life, period. I don't care who you bring to the table. I've never seen anyone ride that much ever. And this was before Alden Baker. So I I think Alden probably backed it down a little bit because it was too, I think it was too much. He would ride just endless tanks of gas, sprints, starts, laps, corner track, figure eights, 35 minute motos over and just over and over and over and over and honestly, for me, I would go up there and ride with him. I don't even think I could have kept my motorcycles running enough. Like I wouldn't, our family wouldn't have been able to afford enough parts to ride as much as he did to just, and it never stopped. It just kept going and going and going. And I would cycle in and out and Matt Walker would come in and out and Ernesto Fonseca would come in and out and Brock Sellards and Ezra Lusk. And we would only speaking for myself and I know Matt Walker was the same and I know Ernesto Fonseca was the same. We would only be able to take a few days before we would have to be like, I got to tap out and go recover and lay down face down somewhere for a while. And then I would come back and get more of it. Right. But he would just keep going and going and going and going. But in the end, he ended up being the greatest ever and he has all the stats to prove it. He has what? 15 titles to his name, you know, and, and he's never going to be able to say he was better than Jeremy McGrath overall at Supercross, which is fine. But for my money, he is the greatest motocross and Supercross combined racer ever. And, and that's just, that's just factual to me. I don't even think you could make a claim for it. And Steve Mathis loves to argue that McGrath should be considered better because he was so much better in Supercross. That's fine. But 
Ricky was so overwhelmingly better at outdoors. And then he was incredibly good at supercross too. And don't forget Ricky dethroned McGrath, right? That Oh one season, he won 13 in a row. And then Jeremy was just never the same past that. So, um, I think I'm pretty safe to say that Ricky was the best ever. He is the goat, but to answer the question mentally, he was, he had it all together and he had all the other things. He had the, the physical like James and like Villapoto and Dungey and Tomac and all these guys. And he had the work ethic, but the, the, the ultimate combination of all of them, because I think you could find little detractions you could throw in and I, you could take little cheap shots at certain guys. You could say James crashed too much and he certainly did. He threw away a lot of wins for no reason. Eli Tomac had mental meltdowns. He should have had Supercross titles to his name already. He had some really bad races in the outdoors, and you're just kind of scratching your head. Ricky didn't really do that. That wasn't in Ricky's repertoire to have those just bad days. Poto had some injuries, right? He made some big mistakes that cost him opportunities at championships. That 2010 Supercross championship, huge crash at St. Louis, cost him not only that supercross championship, but a chance at the outdoor championship. And if you look at the track record, he beat Dungy every time he was healthy. So you would have to think maybe he was going to beat him that supercross season and outdoors as well. Ryan Dungy, incredible career, but I don't think he had the killer instinct that Carmichael had. He was, he's incredibly nice guy, always did it the right way, always said the right thing. Work ethic was there. I think Dungy's work ethic was right there with Carmichael. But I don't think he had the nastiness that Carmichael had because Carmichael would go for the jugular if it meant winning. And I, I don't mean that in a negative way. It's just a different approach. And it, it, their mentality was different. Ricky was a stone-cold killer. And if, if you talk to anyone who was around him at the time, they didn't really care for him. That's not breaking news. I mean, you look at the issues that Mathis and Carmichael had for years. Timmy Ferry didn't like Ricky for a long, long time. Lots of people didn't like him. I didn't get along with him either. He was vindictive, vicious, aggressive, but it was born because he was so terrified of not winning. He made everybody an enemy. Damon Bradshaw was the same way, right? If you were racing against him, he hated you and he didn't care if you hated him back. He did not care. And that made it hard to like him. It really did. I mean, I, you know, I wasn't necessarily competitive with him. He didn't care about me as far as like, he wasn't worried about me beating him, obviously, but it made me not like him. He was, he was a jerk to all of us in that era, right? Talking about 2001, 02, 03, 04, 05. He wasn't cool. Like he wasn't a nice guy. And if he was a nice guy, he was probably a jerk behind your back. And word gets around to that. Now you talk about 2020, Ricky Carmichael, he's super cool way laid back, ha, understands his placement in the support. The sport is forever cemented. So he doesn't have to worry about any of that anymore. And he's come around, he's matured and he realized like, Hey, why am I, I don't have to be insecure anymore. I don't have to worry about any. So he's mended a lot of fences with Mathis being probably the last of those. But back then he was, like I said, stone cold killer and did not care what you thought of him. It only mattered if, if, uh, if he beat you and how badly. So, uh, that's a really long answer to your question, but I think Ricky was just the perfect combination of everything we talked about. Now, Ryan asks, does Aaron Plessinger have more value to Yamaha as a seven to 13th place rider or 
could he be more valuable as a GNCC champion? Keep in mind, Caleb Russell claims to be finished with GNCC after this year, so it would leave the door open to a possible run for Plessinger. Maybe he doesn't stay at Yamaha. If he doesn't have a role there, would he consider going to GNCC? A lot of, a lot of factors here. Well, for one, Ryan, to me, the biggest factor is to go to GNCC racing, you would take a substantial pay cut. And when I say substantial, I mean gigantic. Aaron Plessinger makes a lot of money racing Supercross. He's, I don't know, I don't have access to his tax returns, but it's over a million dollars. It was certainly over a million dollars when he was winning 250 titles. So to go from making seven figures in Supercross to, I don't know what he would make in GNCC, a couple hundred grand probably. Um, If that, right, that's assuming you're winning. I don't think he has any interest in doing that. Now, would he entertain it? in a few years when he's done with supercross and motocross. Absolutely. I, and I do think that's the path he will go down. I just don't think that time is now he's got a lot of money to make and he's, he's still getting better. You know, the, this Salt Lake city supercross run wasn't good for him, but if you look at his rides in Atlanta and Daytona, he was way better. And I think he'll be pretty good outdoors. You know, that Yamaha has some strengths and weaknesses. The outdoors seem to work a little better when they have traction when it's hard and slippery, it doesn't seem that that bike does not seem to favor that, but I think you'll see him come back with a vengeance this, this summer and continue on. He'll find a, you know, factory equipment for 2021 and make a lot of money again. And until that dynamic goes away for him, where he's looking at the landscape and going, yeah, I could probably make the same money doing something else and much safer, let's say for GNCC. And it would be a new opportunity then maybe, but for right now, He's not going to leave millions of dollars on the table. And, you know, maybe Ryan, you don't know the ins and outs and the pay differences. And that's fair, right? It's not like it's publicly um, available information. We don't have, nobody has to report any of that. We don't have uh, unions where those salaries are disclosed, but there is a big, big, big pay difference between factory level guys in GNCC and factory level guys in Supercross. And in until Aaron Plessinger is unable to secure deals like he has in Supercross, I don't think you'll see that change. So let's talk about this in a few years, and I think you'll be onto something, but just not yet. Next question is from Jim, and buddies with Jim, appreciate the question. He's asking about 2011 season. Uh, he, so he went back and listened to the Throwback Pulp MX show that they put out. And it was, I was actually, I believe I was in studio in Vegas and he's, I sounded pretty depressed and had something to do with James Stewart landing on me because that season, if you remember Houston, 2011, James Stewart landed on me. I tore my ACL in the process. And in hindsight, it was kind of the beginning of the end of my career. I was already uh, 31. I was about to turn, turn 32 And if it was in Vegas, I didn't go back and listen to this. If it was in Vegas, I was getting knee surgery the next week. So it was going to be my last supercross of the year. It was going to be my last race for, you know, five or six months. I don't remember being necessarily depressed on that show, but I certainly had a really, really rough season because of the knee injury. I just could never really ride well. Uh, I couldn't really practice. I couldn't really walk. And it was just a, a big nuisance in it kind of made me take a huge step backwards the rest of that season. And then after knee surgery, I was 32 years old and I never really found the pace again or, or that competitiveness. It just, 
set me back and I could never really find it again. And, um, I did in Europe. I was good in Europe, but in the U S I never really got back to the level I was before that. So just to recap and Jim's asking what happened at Houston. So the main event, uh, there's a big crash in the first turn. I was lucky enough to scoot around it and I'm running like seventh or eighth for the first 10 minutes. Maybe I don't think we were quite to halfway yet. And Michael Essie is all over me and he stuffs me in this corner, which is fine. He was going to beat me anyway. Just keep in mind, Michael Essie, you know, factory KTM really, obviously he was winning outdoor races. Great rider, right? He's still young at this point. Stuffs me and it pushes me to the outside. And in this next section, you could go inside or could go outside. It was kind of a split lane. It wasn't blocked off, but there was two different ways to go through the section. And if you railed the outside, you could triple onto this tabletop And if you went inside, you kind of bounced on and then had a different rhythm. And there was, it was built that way. Well, when Mike stuffed me to the outside, I had no choice. It it bumped me to the outside line and little be known to either Mike or I, James Stewart was coming back. He had been in that first turn pileup and was coming like a bat out of hell to catch these guys. I didn't even know he was there. So I get pushed to the outside line. Well, I wasn't tripling onto the tabletop, nor was I going to be able to, after just getting punted out of the inside line by Mike. So I, I bounced through the section and, and given it was pretty slow, but I had no choice either. Well, James comes railing around the outside and I don't know if he didn't see me like closely enough, or if he thought that if I was in the outside, I must've tripled on. He probably didn't see Mike stuff me because we slowed each other down so much. James came barreling into the both of us, right? He was pretty far back over the finish line jump just before that. Well, he miscalculated and thought I would be out of the way when he tripled on and he jumped right onto the back of me. Now, my argument would be, man, you got to be more aware than that. Like I'm in the line. You can't triple into the line if I'm already there. His His argument would be, Dude, you can't be in the fast line if you didn't triple on, which he's not wrong, but I didn't want to be in the fast line. I got, I got literally like frame to frame contact pushed out there. I didn't have any business being in that outside line. I just didn't have any choice. So yeah, both, both of us were probably in the wrong. I certainly wasn't trying to be in the wrong. In the end, it cost James a lot, right? He had a huge crash. I had a huge, it cost me the rest of my season. I tore my ACL and knee surgery and all kinds of bad things, but it was just a bad deal. Just a, maybe a poor decision on his part. Maybe, you know, me being in the wrong place at the wrong time also. And, uh, yeah, we went flipping down the straightaway. I was pretty pissed. I, you know, in hindsight, I can understand his side is maybe he didn't know any of that happened in front of him. And he just thought I would be gone by the time he got there. Um, but I, it just was really costly for me for my career. Um, so I'm laying on the side of the track and my knee is hot garbage. I knew it was bad news laying on the side of the track and James get up and James gets up and keep going. He's fine, which is, I'm thankful for that. I don't want, obviously don't want to see him get hurt. So <laughs> we're just chilling. And then all of a sudden I see Kevin Wyndham just go flipping by and he crashed trying to triple on to that tabletop. And I'm like sitting there, I'm like, huh, well, that was weird because Wyndham was gone. He had a huge lead and just flips down the straightaway. And, and all these medics that were helping me try to f- make sure I was okay, they all just bail and go chase after Wyndham, which I was fine. They didn't need to help me anymore, but it was just funny. Like I was like, hey, 
I'm still, I'm still here. Like I'm, I'm still over here too, but obviously the race leader had just <laughs> gone cartwheeling through that section and was now, you know, his bike is a hunk of broken metal laying next to the track and he is all in a it piled up in a heap as well, but just a crazy night and, um, a career defining moment in a negative way. It was kind of the last night where I really felt like I was a hundred percent racing in America. I just never felt like I was the same because I was pretty good that, that night I qualified. Well, my bike was terrible. I'll, I'll say that that 2011 Suzuki we had was just awful. We didn't put anywhere near the amount of work into the engine. It was so damn slow. Um, but I was riding pretty well and I just never kind of was able to recover from that. But based on age, I think more than anything, it was just so hard to get back to th- that level and, and then get even better continue to innovate yourself at that age. So long, long answer there as I, again, keep saying that, but, um, I like to expand on some of these questions, but good question. Long time ago, it's coming up on 10 years ago. Um, but that was, that was it, man. When I really think of where did this all go wrong that, that night set off a cavalcade of negative sequences for me that, that I never really recovered from career wise. And, uh, it's all for the best though. I went on to do some of the things I'm most proud of in my life, which is, um, you know, work for fly racing and uh, the career that I've set off on here in Boise, getting to do awesome things like this podcast, being a part of the Pulp MX network, uh, do our VIP experiences, which I hope all of you will take me up on as we roll into 2021 supercross. But again, thanks for listening. I appreciate all the sponsors. Thank you for joining me on this venture. And, um, if you have suggestions about the podcast, let me know. I want to make this as good as possible. I don't have an ego with this thing. I don't care, right? There is no negative. I don't want it to be negative, right? But if you have things that, Hey, if you do this, if you did that, it would be better. I'm all for it. Please send in your questions, get an opportunity to win a fly racing formula helmet. And Hey, I just thought of something. Let's do a set of tires as well. So the fly racing formula helmet is going to be on August 2nd, but the weekend before that, so two weeks from today would be August 26th. We're going to do a set of Pirelli tires. So two weekends in a row. And I hope that incentivizes all of you to ask questions, but two weeks in a row, we'll have giveaways. So you have some time. You have two weeks to think of your question before you get it in Pirelli tires on the 26th fly racing formula to celebrate the launch of our 2021 line on August 2nd. Again, thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. See you.